sometimes then our dear society and media will call them out for their practices of overpaying for great talent or not being good stewards or a cost to raise a dollar. And then I scratch my head because I'm like, if they're trying to solve a problem of curing cancer, wouldn't you continue to invest? You're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, and in these episodes, you'll hear Sangram interview incredible practitioners, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs within our community. And like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram, you're welcome to another episode of Flip My Phone Podcast. Uh, super excited. Last year, I had an opportunity to be in Asheville, and I had not a whole bunch of expectations from Asheville, but I was uh, super pleased. One, definitely an incredible event that we're going to just chat about in a second, but also the view, the, everything over there was just just fantastic. And the book building great relationship with several folks. And I had the pleasure to, to meet Trent. Trent is the CEO of Pursuant. And well, you know, I'd love for Trent you to share a little bit about yourself. We're going to jump into this podcast talking about nonprofit, for-profit, what's the difference to be a CEO uh, like that. We're going to talk about customer events. Uh, I think it was one of the best event execution-wise and, and ex- inspiration-wise. So I wanted to kind of Trent in, uh, get, get in more of Trent's thought on why why keep it small why keep it personalized why keep it the way they did because they've been doing it for several years so we'll jump into that and, and really also get to know the idea of uh, a lot of people think nonprofits are very differently worked than for profit and i feel like i got a different feeling when i was over there so i'd love to jump into all of these things so trent welcome to the show thanks sangam great to be here nice to nice to hear from you again and we loved having you at our converge conference last fall yeah, it was a good conference, Trent, like yeah. really well executed by you and your team. Thank you. Thank you for that. I mean, the setting didn't hurt. We always try to do our Converge customer conference in a beautiful setting. And this year in Asheville, North Carolina, it kind of exceeded those expectations. But And I thought it was one of our best, the collaboration between the speakers. And uh, it was cool to have the speakers kind of hang around and and, and uh, have our, our own customers and these nonprofit professionals continue to learn in the hallways. You know you're doing it right if you've got a lot of the conversations that are spilling over into lunches and dinners and uh, late night cocktails. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So let's start with a fun fact about yourself before we dive super deep into the customer event part. Well, fun fact. Well, I mean, I've been a marketer and kind of a coach, if you will, consultant by trade forever and a day. I always love learning from other people and then kind of taking what I learned from them and, and sharing them with others. I think that's that's part of what culturalizes here at Pursuant. I, I still get my oxygen from working with our clients and our prospects, trying to solve problems from them, but also sharing what I learned. I think a fun fact, you know, I love to play golf and a little fun fact, and it's been a really long time now though, but I, I wrote a golf book on the top places to play in the United States. United States public access golf courses, which was kind of along my personality as well in the sense of just sharing great, you know, ideas. I loved golf. And I, when I traveled, I loved to try new golf courses. And uh, I came up with this idea with a buddy of mine back in the late 90s. We traveled all over the United States. We played 92 golf courses in one year in my car, drove all wow. over. We put on 26,000 miles on my car, played all the top public access golf courses in the country, called it Fairways to Heaven. You could probably get it for like a penny on Amazon today, and I don't make a dime off of it. Obviously, I wouldn't make a dime if it's only selling for a penny, but you know, our distributor long ago went out of business and whatnot, but it was a lot of fun, and I, loved, I just love sharing. I mean, you know, if you learn things, share about them, 
and it focused on the top, uh, I think there was 56 courses in that book of the best public access courses you could play and you should play before you die. Now, 20 years later, there's a lot more I'd add to it. And hopefully if all goes well to pursue it, I'll put out a second edition of Fairways to Heaven here in the next few years. <laughs> Get out and play some more golf. <laughs> oh man, I love that. See, that's why I love asking the question because you, you get you. I would have never known that you actually <laughs> and you actually went off on this crazy ride with a buddy of it's yours great. and ended up writing a book on it. That's so cool. That is so cool. Yeah, well, in fact, I mean, this last weekend they had the PGA Tour event at Torrey Pines in San Diego, and anytime I watch a pro golf tournament that was at a course that we played when we wrote the book, I always get nostalgic. I say to my wife and kids, it's like. Daddy's going to take off for a few months, throw his clubs in the trunk and go write an update. In this day and age, I'd probably do it as a blog or a podcast, man, just like you're doing. It'd be even better, right? Did you Imagine if you had a podcast purely on golf. Yeah. This is off script completely, but imagine if you had a podcast purely for golf enthusiasts and telling them why certain golf course might be better than the others. And it's, you know, awesome. your take. I mean, you would get a, such a niche market and, and, you know, most people who are playing golf are well to do. Probably. Absolutely. Yeah. So maybe I'll take, maybe I'll take that idea up next. That's good. Yeah. So there's my little known fact. <laughs> that is super cool, man. Well, so one of the reasons I wanted you on the podcast was really because I was honestly very grateful that I was invited to come speak at, uh, at your event. And I ended up chatting with so many of the other speakers and also a lot of your customers. And I felt like the first thing I observed was you could have had many more people there. It wasn't yeah. the fact that you didn't. You, but, but I think you and your team decided to keep it small, intimate. And I remember some of the people I was talking to in the morning, they were like, yeah, we've been coming to this event from last two years or three years or four years. And it just felt like they just, they just felt like this is, of course, we're going to do this. We're never going to miss this event. So I'm, I'm just curious, why keep it small? And why keep it like so exclusive? Well, I mean, in a nonprofit, like you said earlier, the nonprofit industry has a lot of similarities. There's differences, but a lot of similarities. And in our space, you know, there are trade conferences of all sorts. There's the macro ones like the Direct Marketing Association, Nonprofit Federation, which are huge. And then there's niche ones for higher ed or hospitals or ministries and whatnot. And a lot of these large conferences, they've kind of, I've, I've witnessed, they're really important, don't get me wrong, but they, a lot of them turn into like networking, biz dev, kind of boondoggle type events, you know? Everybody's trying to outspend each other and the attendees. I, I don't know that they always get out of it what they could. I think they're a great place to develop emerging talent and whatnot, you know, professional development and whatnot. But I tell you, for more senior folks and decision makers, it just doesn't serve the key strategists and decision makers very well, at least at nonprofit organizations. And I would imagine that's true in a lot of other businesses yeah. as well. They don't get a chance to really collaborate with peers in here and in our space to really connect with speakers of what's happening in the for-profit space. I, I, I really want to close this gap. You know, it's like the nonprofit space is almost like the, you know, the adopted little sister at times, you know, they, they you know, they get a lot of hand-me-downs from the for-profit space. For-profit organizations do a lot of R&D and are committed to excellence related to customer loyalty, business development, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, if, if it can get to scale, the nonprofit space kind of gets the, the luxury and particularly if they're of size, they can afford perhaps to hire consultants and whatnot, but it kind of, get, it kind of gets diluted. And, and in that case, I love bringing in speakers from the outside. You know, we brought in a speaker from Pixar before that's talking about storytelling. And it's like, at first you'd think that seems a little odd, but when Pixar guy talks about 
you know, how they, they storyboard together the, the, and engage their audience for an hour and a half and both appeal to little kids as well as the adults that are in the room, you think, wow, that's not that different. And how a nonprofit needs to talk about the, to the new donor and the, the longtime major gift donor, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I also think it's cool to see external speakers like when you, you came in to really have to think about the adaptation of their content for the nonprofit space because sales is different, you know, to the constituents, if you will, uh, rather than to like the customer. But there's a lot the same, but there's a lot that's different. So whether it's marketing, branding, sales, storytelling, analytics, business intelligence, there's a lot of topics that, uh, you know, I've, I think we've stumped some really good speakers and authors that have come in and had to rethink. You could tell they've been on the speaking circuit and they've given that stock presentation over and over again. And while they'll repurpose a lot of that content, it kind of catches them in their tracks. And then they get to learn too. So how cool is that, you know? Totally. I mean, I had to rethink uh, quite a yeah. bit. I remember having conversations with Taylor and, you know, some of the other folks on the marketing team. It was like, look, I talked to B2B for profit. I never thought about for profit, nonprofit, but I really want to make sure I'm adding value here. And I want to make sure that I'm not talking about stuff that just maybe just too off. Like, what's my role here? Is my role to just be an outside person, just talk about something different that we're doing to inspire maybe some thoughts, or is it to truly relate to something? And I ended up doing research on charity water. I ended up researching yeah. on some nonprofits. It's like, how, what did they do that's interesting? And it really made me look at our own business. and like, we need that. Like, I learned so much about it. We need to create that emotions that nonprofits are so good at. The best nonprofits creates emotions. And, that's right. and I think that's Storytelling. Yep. for a far B2B business as well. Well, I, I also found, you know, and my background before I, it's probably been, I guess, since 2005, since I've been exclusively dedicated to the nonprofit space. But prior to that, I was in marketing. I had my own agency in Colorado that served, uh, you know, all kinds. For profit was our primary. And, you know, I, it took a little while for me to adapt with some of that terminology. So if you think B2B and B2C, like yeah. in the nonprofit space, when they're working with corporations, for sponsorships or government grants, that's very much a B2B type interaction. And when they're working with individual donors to participate in events or to volunteer to give that $25 donation online or to become a major donor, that's very much B2C. And so even that adaptation, that slight thought process, it's not a difficult chasm to cross, but both the speakers and then the audience to have them think like, oh, people don't understand this because the nonprofits are just different. Well, yes, you are in some ways, which are also very similar and you yeah. should pay attention to what some of these great speakers and authors and whatnot, because there's great adaptation. Jim Collins did good to great. And then not long after did a nice little kind of smaller booklet on good to great in the social sector, because I think he recognized that when he was working with organizations in the nonprofit sector, he was probably tired of them hearing, Oh, we're different. Well, everybody's different. And <laughs> uh, you're seeing more adaptation than that, you know, measure what matters. The great Don John Doerr, OKRs book, you know, there's, there's some examples in there around, you know, the One Foundation and, and, and the Gates Foundation and whatnot, but still correlate to Google. So, I mean, like, you know, I mean, it's, it, we're, we're similar, different. We're just a different market segment that has its own uniqueness, no different than hospitals might or a manufacturing sector. Yeah. Now, I wanted to also get your thoughts on trend that, one, you are building something really cool. So, I'd love for you to share what Pursuant is actually doing and how you're supporting the nonprofit sector because it it, it was, for me, it was a big revelation when I was there to recognize and understand, oh, wait a minute, you're, what you are doing is, is more of like, if I understood it correctly, enabling a lot of yeah. these nonprofits to be super successful and all of them are nonprofits. So, so I'd love for you to share what Pursuant does and 
and maybe an example of what you felt like was the best nonprofit as an example, right? Like, you know, here's a nonprofit who's doing some really cool stuff that people should learn from. Wow, that's a good question as it relates to picking some some of the market leaders. Well, first of all, let's tell you a little bit about what Pursuant does. So, I mean, at a macro level, we want to change the world through great causes. So while we don't raise money ourselves, we do that through the organizations that we serve. And we help nonprofit organizations really elevate their brand and more deeply engage with their constituents, ultimately so that they can raise more money and do more life-changing work through those organizations. We, we do that through both services and technology tools. A lot of the hands-on work that we do are professional services, so we'll do a lot of analytics that lead to smart strategy and storytelling that actually then get in the hands of the organization. And really, you're trying to inspire and move people to either give a spontaneous gift, but more importantly, when you think about customer loyalty, which was an area of focus that you know, we, we hit on at Converge this year as well, we want folks to, to be loyal to the, the charities that they may support. And you do that through resonating with the sorts of messages that could prioritize. And I think in this day and age, that's why business intelligence and the adaptation of making sure that you are talking to the right audience and making sure that you can kind of personalize some of those things can really be create great stewardship of the funds, the limited funds, the marketing funds that a, a nonprofit might have. So while we do professional services, we've been really also invested in our analytics and business intelligence side so that we can equip with tools, analytics tools, software, and whatnot to help them run their organizations better. So that's a macro of what we do. And we can do that through a variety of ways. On one end, again, not unlike what some of your listeners might experience with, you know, what might be analytics insights or experience. We'll do an awful lot of research and segmentation to understand the various personas. We'll do that through a lot of, you know, both quantitative and qualitative work. And then we take that to inform our strategies. And so with the nonprofit space, they really do need a lot more handholding. There's this continuum, and I'll kind, of, I'll kind of couch nonprofits into two camps, and maybe it's not fair, and I hope some of your listeners don't take this the wrong way, but I think, it's, I think it's fair after doing it for a lot of years. You know, there's kind of what I consider the professional nonprofits, which are kind of higher ed and hospital. They're run more like businesses. They, they typically have a lot of folks in leadership that have a diversity of experiences, and they're much more run like businesses. And in those cases, primarily, it's because the, the core product, if you will, either education or healthcare drives a lot of the revenue, tuition and or healthcare costs, right? So the foundational yeah. elements are a minor part of what they're doing and actually to run their organization. But I'll couch those guys separately that I'll, I'll deem mission-based organizations, which really count on either government, but, but primarily individual donors to yeah. drive the operational costs. So those could be health and human services. You mentioned charity water, ministries, et cetera, et cetera. And those types of organizations are usually led by folks that are really passionate about a cause, but not necessarily well-grounded in business experience. It's just not, uh, it happens at times. I mean, Charity Water is a great example where Scott Harrison's got some business and marketing expertise that he then took a, you know, a mission application to starting that nonprofit. And there's an example of one that does it really well. They take a lot of familiar marketing tactics, if you will, and it's a really high touch customer experience. You know, I'm going to give and I'm also going to be stewarded really well because I can watch the webcam of where my water well is that I put $25 and I can see it making impact. And I'll get to that a little bit later because that's the intangible why people give, right? And we call that yeah. stewardship in our case to make sure that they understand how your money was put to good use and that we're responsibly the impact that you're making. But anyway, back to the mission-focused organizations, a lot of those folks, they don't have the traditional marketing background. They might not, they don't probably don't have an MBA or they didn't probably take their internship at XYZ Corporation. And they don't have huge marketing budgets, much less sales budgets. 
So marketing is your brand awareness and sales is actually converting that into either donations or volunteer hours or participating in an event or coming to a gala. That's closing the deal in our world. So that's a little bit more about what we do and how it differentiates. Charity Water is a great example. I think, you know, there are, there are a lot of organizations that I think, quote unquote, do it well, but that are also like a Charity Water or St. Jude, sometimes names are cursed in our space because they have these tremendous success that therefore lead to bigger budgets and that therefore also then can relate to things like, you know, direct response television and other things that are just not accessible to your day-to-day nonprofit that's trying to cure cancer or, you know, care for the elderly or disaster relief or whatnot. So I, I hate to I hate to say this, and I think our our industry would agree. There's probably examples, more examples of those that it's it, that that are not aspiring to the better practices because of either mission based passion and lack of experience and expertise. Than there are those that you'd look at and say, "Wow, I mean, that's a that's a gold medal organization that's really run very well from a, both a business strategy." But like I said, hospitals and higher higher ed is usually where you see it. We work with Cleveland Clinic, for instance. That's a good example. Just there last week. A great brand, run really, really well, run like a corporation. And so their foundation is run the same way. They raise a lot of money and it's not just, you know, to, to help the patients. It's to, it, it's to raise the level of health care, not just at Cleveland Clinic globally, but in your own local clinic with the way that they work and in teams and how they can share that. It's just an exceptional organization. I love, I love that story. And thank you so much for sharing more of the backdrop of the nonprofit, the way of thinking, because I think a lot of times um, I had Katie Bisbee uh, from uh, Donors Choose um, on the podcast a few, maybe late last year. And Donors Choose, as you might might know, like you can say, it's again, a very well run organization out there. She has been with that nonprofit for about 12 years. And they have gone from like just this one teacher trying to create a project to now having hundreds of thousands of teachers volunteering and telling what they want. And they went from, they, she looks at, she's like the SVP of marketing sales and partnerships. And she looks at it as a business. Um, yes. And she's really looking at like, okay, how much did we raise from partnership? How much do we do uh, raise to our sales? And how much brand awareness do we have in marketing? Overall, are we generating three times more revenue for uh, our organization and our beneficiaries than what we actually got in? So it was such a cool experience for me to hear from a nonprofit where she's like, no, it's, it's a business. At the end of the day, yes, we have passion. and Yes, we have more love for, for this specific cause. And that's why I'm here. And I'm going to serve this as long as I can. But more importantly, if we don't treat it like business, it's not going to stay there. Actually, it actually might be a negative impact for the cause that they're working on. And I don't know if you see organizations that you work with so many nonprofits that they're like, well, you know what? it might be better off for them actually to partner up with somebody else rather than to Oh, yeah. Yeah, you hit a nerve there because I actually think our industry is ripe for consolidation. And the interesting point is that unlike corporate America and, you know, pursuance of for-profit companies, so I see a lot as it relates to valuations and private equity and investors and shareholder value, if you will. I'm a shareholder. You know, I'm the CEO. I've invested. I'm an option holder. So I care about our company. Well, think about that for a nonprofit space. There is no market to value the nonprofit and their board is primarily made up of volunteers who are governing with the mentality. Many of them have this, you know, fantastic experience with business and they expect this sort of execution from the nonprofit they might serve on the board with. Yet Mm -hmm. there's no measurement of shareholder value. 
And there really isn't something to aspire towards what would be in the best interest of the constituent or the mission. So to your point, you know, I think like, for instance, there's, you know, 30 years ago, American Cancer Society was, it still is the 800 pound gorilla in cancer. But as times have evolved, and, and let's, let's think back to Livestrong, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I guess it's been long about 15 years ago, you know, yellow wristband comes out and it kind of revolutionizes the way that specifically someone else is talking about the cancer story. And now today you've got, you know, tens of thousands of kind of long tail cancer charities that are doing great work, but everything from colon cancer specialty to, you know, all sorts, right? I mean, it's fascinating. And, and that's obviously caused some competitive disadvantage for American Cancer Society, who back in the day is the trusted brand. Well, our industry does not really think in terms of what then might make sense for either someone to team up with American Cancer Society or for a competitor, if you will, for American Cancer Society to evolve with that. And there's been flashes of that, whether it was Susan G. Komen for The Cure, et cetera. But it's so interesting in our space that, you know, the example that you give where the organizations that are run most like businesses seem to thrive and yeah. raise the most amount of money and make the biggest impact. And sometimes then our dear society and media will call them out for their practices of overpaying for great talent or not being good stewards or a cost to raise a dollar. And then I scratch my head because I'm like, if they're trying to solve a problem of curing cancer, wouldn't you continue to invest? I mean, every, all of your listeners that understand the you know, cost to sell, if you will, and the ROI associated with that, you would, you know, if, if I told you you could spend 50 cents to raise a dollar and you wouldn't meet, reach a diminishing return until you spent $100 million in sales and marketing, so long as you can, you, you do it until you reach diminishing returns, right? Right. But in the nonprofit space, we have this other kind of, you know, public persona about charity navigator in the media and something will get exposed around wounded warriors or this and that in the media about, oh, they're paying their CEO too much or they had some sort of big party to celebrate. Well, if you don't do some of those things appropriately, you're not going to attract the right talent to solve these really important social problems. And so it's so contradictory. Now I've kind of gotten onto a rant in a sense, because this is the part about the industry that so frustrates me. But it's also why I love it, because I want to solve those things. Yeah, I love that, man. I think I'm off thought about this a lot, like as I've gone through like being with Pardot and Salesforce and now Terminus and, and yeah. very fortunate to see all that. And I think about like, okay, where what I might do later on. And I um, always think about like, you know, I've learned so much about marketing and sales in this sector that when I look at some other areas like nonprofits or maybe super industrial kind of revolution going on that side or a completely different industry is like, what if we took some of this experience and actually did that and implemented that? What would that do? So I think about that a lot. And I, I, whenever I look at, I only give money to folks who either reach out to me personally or at my church or like, you know, something like Charity Water, I saw something and I'm like, yeah, that's really cool, right? That's yeah. it. And it, right. And the rest, I have no idea. So like, you know, I don't even know, should I go and do, or I don't know if I'm, is that good or bad? Is this charity more important than that? And I'm not going to do the research on it to figure all of those things out. So it, it's a, it's but even a, if you do the research, I think some of some of what's frustrating is that those organizations that are the kind of watchdogs for our industry. And by the way, it's unfortunate that we kind of need that because there have been some charities that scam people, and that's just so unfortunate. Um, but at the same time, like the metrics by which they measure success might not even be the right ones. I mean, imagine for a minute if they let's use your phrase, a flip the funnel. What if they thought differently for a minute and talked about fundraising effectiveness, not in the terms of how little you spend on your fundraising spend versus how much you raise, but the other way around, how effective the dollars that you do invest 
that turn into more money for that organization to fulfill their mission as a as a you know as an impact. So if you were spending twenty million or fifty million or a hundred million on sales and marketing, and it's causing you to be impactful by raising three, four, five hundred million, that's better than somebody who's like, yeah, we raised fifty million, but aren't we great because we only spent two hundred thousand dollars doing it? It's yeah. not. A, it's not. It's a misleading indicator. Yeah. It's a that. different topic for another podcast someday. There's some yeah. great guys, a guy by the name of Dan Pilata. He's got a book huh. called Uncharitable. And if anybody hasn't seen his TED Talk out there that would like to get more information on that, look up Dan Pilata's TED Talk and, and maybe check out Un- Uncharitable. He's a really thoughtful guy as it relates to that. that I, have, or, I, I listened to that before I came and spoke at, the, uh, at your event where I yeah. saw he was, he was like, man, I did everything right. Like, and I'm like, I'm doing yeah. it right way and then i still felt they got penalized for it so yeah i think well, yeah. i'll make sure that it's part of our our show notes so all right I, now this is so, this is something real quick on it that if i if i in my next chapter saying if it isn't that i'm going to do volume two of fairways to heaven then maybe i'll dedicate my life to something more noble like this i wish that our society in this country and for the world for that matter would foster some sort of kind of tenured contribution back to society that once you've kind of made your way that the latter parts of your career you either give back to education teaching others or that you give back into the nonprofit space i wish there was some way we could culturalize that so that we could take some of our best minds in this country and filter them through to, to solve better education problems or the social service because i i'm an unabashed proponent of nonprofit organizations can do a better job i'm not picking on the government but when you take a band of passionate people to solve a problem they can raise money for that cause the same way that you as a business person can go raise capital to start a good business idea and, and get a tribe of customers. And they can solve problems that we can't otherwise do. So what, what could we do to actually incent and motivate uh, our society that when, when we've made it and those folks are in the kind of latter part of their career, that their volunteer work, if you will, is back into education yeah. and nonprofit social sector. Totally. Let me, I just saw a tweet, I think yesterday from Bill Gates, where he put yeah. his, I don't know if you saw that, the 10-year change that was a 10 year thing and he had these numbers that were I was just like looking at them where they live it seems like as part of his mission and, and Melinda Gates and the whole foundation was to reduce by a certain percentage the literacy the poverty line and, and all that yeah. stuff and see like those were the metrics they the global metrics and 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 seems like they they did an impact and and what a great example to have uh, to set a great fantastic for, for somebody like him um, yeah so uh, I'm going to, I mean, I took like a bunch of notes. So I'm going to try to <laughs> uh, summarize, like, you know, I, I feel like there are two really big ones. So I want to like really focus on them. And then uh, I'd love for you to share a challenge with uh, a lot of the leaders listening to the podcast, because I think people need to, to really get to hear from someone like you who is running a for-profit organization, very passionate about all the nonprofits and how do you look at leadership in general? So a couple of things. I don't know if this is a big idea, but go, go, go and look at your book, Fair Race to Heaven. I'm going to go take a yeah, look at that. Check it out. Yeah. Check it Try out. to bump it up from like 1 million on Amazon to like 998,000. Let's see if we can get your listeners to go check that out. I mean, it yeah. is 20 years old, so I apologize that it's so dated, but yeah, it's awesome. Imagine somebody takes that book and goes, reaches that and there's no course there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, but beyond that, I felt like, you know, going back to the idea of events and doing such an exclusive job of uh, having those events and then bringing people that talk about branding and storytelling and the emotions and crossing the line between B2B and B2C. I feel like the big idea for me, Trent, really over there is that you treated your customers, you and your team treated your customers 
like they're changing the world. That's what I felt like. That's the feeling I left with from the from that event. And I felt like, what if you know, like big thing, a big idea is that is that how we're treating our customers? That you know, whoever we had a customer in our office the other day, they're changing the way heating and cooling is going to be done for the next entire century, right? They're creating this chip that's going to change the way where you can now stack a pizza. Uh, next to a something that's super hot and and not worry about heating and cooling going out of wax. Hmm. They're changing it because because of that now you can take blood banks to you know in in drones and because of the technology that they have keep it at the right temperature and drop it in in combat situations where no airplane can go and all that stuff. So you know hear that and you're like wow we should be doing whatever we can to make that customer successful. So what I felt what you did and your team did was you really treated your customer as royalties. And I felt like each one of them felt like they had a big purpose and that they're going after. So I feel like that passion was very, very well felt. Um, the other part, uh, the second big idea is that you, you mentioned this towards the end is that what if we flipped the funnel on this thing, right? What if nonprofits, and I think it doesn't go for just nonprofit, anybody out there, what if you just looked at whatever you're doing right now and you just flipped it and, and just challenged yourself to figure out everything that you're doing Maybe you're creating some level of impact, but what if you flipped it and just focus on a few things, maybe one thing, and yeah. just double down on that one, right? So your idea of like, find that big passion stuff and, and really start looking at it like pennies on a dollar, really look at the dollar area and focus on that area more than anything else. So I feel like those were really the two big ideas, and I'll have more right thoughts in our show notes. I'm going to leave you, Trent, with uh, sharing a challenge with everybody listening to the podcast now. Well, Thanks, Sangram. I think it was also important to note that our conference too, and this will kind of segue into the challenge, we had prospects there too. I mean, a third of our audience, we'd never even bought from us. And you'd think for a minute, like, how do you get them to take three days of their life to go to a conference and not feel like they were going to be sold to, but they they end up trusting you. So here's, here's kind of my challenge. I mean, the bottom line is what I've learned over the years that served me well is pretty simple, like you said, but you got to do as much listening as you do selling. You got to build trust. You got to evaluate what your customers are telling you and kind of challenge yourself whether you're stubbornly still trying to convince them that your idea or your product or whatever else is what they need, or have you truly found a solution to a problem that they have? If you're listening, the problem you thought that they might have could be changing or you might have been wrong. Mm. And so whatever the mechanism, whether it's a conference, whether it's feedback loops, you know, surveys, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you just can't be afraid to tweak and really listen. I think a lot of marketers, a lot of businesses are afraid at times to hear what their customers might tell them because they don't want to be wrong. They've raised money or they've got a job or they've got a strategic plan. And we all need to kind of humble up, stay simple, stay focused. We're on the same team. We're trying to solve a problem that they have. And, and when you're doing that, you're doing it together. They've got a problem. They want to solve it. You've got a product or a service that's trying to solve that problem. If we looked at ourselves on the same side of the table as opposed to opposite side of the table, we'd probably be really surprised about how that listening and building trust is going to really turn into some great friendships and, and better product or service. So, you know, do as much listening as you do selling. Listening as much as selling, if not more. So yeah. thank you, friend. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Sangram. Best of luck and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.